We're turning back to Exodus today. We started considering the message of this book last time. Gave a basic overview of the historic context uh, of the book, the importance of the Exodus event, both historically and theologically, uh, as far as really the rest of the Scripture is concerned. I think it's not without significance that virtually uh, every theme of the Gospel, as far as the work and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in that Gospel, uh, is set down for us in uh, one way or another uh, in this book of Exodus. So it is a theological foundation for the uh, Scripture that follows, and particularly in the developing of this theme of salvation and redemption uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, our approach to the book, as I suggested last time, is going to be rather thematic instead of chapter by chapter. It would take us uh, a good long while to do it uh, that way. But if we can focus our attention upon the theme of the book and demonstrate the development of that theme, hopefully we can... uh, come to some understanding as to what Moses is setting forth in this book and learn to apply the message then as we go through. Uh, Great theme, really two themes, of redemption and service. If I had to summarize the book in those uh, simple terms, it would be a theme of redemption and a theme of service. The first part of the book obviously concerns the redemption as we have the deliverance of the nation from the land of bondage and the mighty uh, rescuing of God of these people from the bondage of Egyptian affliction. Uh, We see the wonders taking them through the Red Sea and through that entire wilderness experience. Uh, Time after time, the evidence of God's strong hand uh, upon these people. But once they're delivered, uh, and the... Uh, relationship, if you will, between God and this nation is established. And in many ways, what we're going to see in the book of Exodus is the birth of a nation. Uh, And we now have the covenant beginnings of the nation of Israel as a national entity. Uh, The rest of the book, then, having been delivered, having been redeemed, we're going to see the service that is required of these people. Uh, The great instructions concerning the tabernacle and the service of the Lord that is to be rendered uh, at the tabernacle. And I think we'll have some uh, interesting discussions uh, at that point because the tabernacle, one of the great object lessons of uh, worship, one of the great object lessons that God gave to the people uh, then and for our benefit now uh, that give significant instruction concerning the uh, religious service that is to be given unto the Lord. Uh, Very, very important. Uh, And it's not without significance, and I'll play upon this theme as we approach it. But you have the same language. The authorized version doesn't always translate it the same way. Uh, But it's interesting to me that you have the same language for service and for servitude uh, that occurs all the way through uh, this book. Uh, The terms that describe Israel's bondage to the Egyptians uh, and their servitude to those harsh taskmasters. Uh, It is the same word, then, that later is going to describe 
uh, if I can put it in these terms, then their bondage unto the Lord uh, and the service that they are to render unto the Lord. Uh, the service uh, is continuing, uh, but obviously the master uh, is what has changed, and it uh, is a most uh, important message there that we're going to serve someone. We either serve, as it were, the God uh, of this world, or we serve the one true and living God, and this, I think, will be very clear uh, as we come to the book. All right, so these themes, then, of redemption, deliverance, uh, and service or worship. Let me state the broad theme that I gave you last week, and then we'll begin to develop it here some uh, in this opening analysis. All right, the general statement of theme, then the broad statement would be this, that because of his covenant promise, because of his covenant promise, God has brought out Israel from bondage in order that they might serve him. All right, because of the faithfulness that he has to the covenant promises, and this is going to be a theme that we start with today, uh, because of that promise that he has rendered uh, in the covenant, God has delivered Israel from that place of bondage in order that they might serve him. All right, now, as I suggested, I think, last week, I'm going to uh, seek to analyze this book for you in four broad, uh, four broad topics or categories. I want us to look, first of all, and this is what we'll come to today, why did God deliver these people? Why the Exodus? And then we'll consider how he delivered, and then we'll consider uh, whom he delivered, and what a wonderful description of God's people uh, that is given to us in this book, and then finally where uh, he delivered. So we can answer those basic questions. I think we'll have a good uh, synoptic overview anyway of the message of the book. All right, so our first question, why did God deliver these people from the land of Egypt? And there are two basic reasons. I think I suggested these last time, but we come to consider them now in detail this morning. Two basic reasons why God delivered Israel from the land of bondage. First of all, because of the promise that he had given to the patriarchs. And number two, because of his concern about the people. This is the two focal points uh, that Moses gives in this book as to why God delivered the people. First of all, because of the promise to the patriarchs. All right, look at, and I'll just point out several verses here and then make a couple points of interpretation and application. Uh, chapter 2 in verse 24. Chapter 2.24 is a key verse here, really, that links uh, both of these reasons together. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. All right, I think this is a key verse that links both of those ideas together. First of all, because of the covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then secondly, because of God's concern and the interest, the respect, if you will, uh, that he had toward these people. Now, as you read the book of Exodus over and over again, I don't think you can miss this, even with the most cursory of readings. Uh, our attention is going to be brought uh, to uh, the fact that God was fulfilling his word to the fathers. We can multiply references here. Look at chapter 3 uh, and verse 6. 
chapter 3 and verse 6. This is the great uh, Christophany as the angel of the Lord appears uh, to Moses from the burning bush. Obviously a uh, most significant uh, revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll perhaps have time later on to consider the full implications even of this passage. Uh, but here is the angel of the Lord, uh, one of the great Christophanies. Let me just pause here to make sure you understand what I'm referring to. Uh, just finish this chapter in this little book I'm writing on finding Christ in the Old Testament, and Christophanies is what I was addressing. Uh, but Christophanies are those pre-incarnate appearances uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have various ways in the Old Testament that God revealed Himself to men. Uh, Hebrews tells us that, that in the old times, God spoke in diverse ways. Uh, and one of the ways that God revealed himself uh, was via what we call a theophany. A theophany is simply an appearance of God. Uh, in some form, uh, in, in some manifestation, God gives a visible representation of himself to the people uh, to encourage them to uh, instruct them concerning his presence, concerning his faithfulness. We read, for instance, and we'll see it here in Exodus, uh, here is that fiery cloud, that fiery pillar and the cloud that uh, led Israel through the wilderness uh, that we would identify as a theophany. Uh, that was not God. Uh, don't interpret that to mean that God was smoke or God was a cloud. Uh, but it was a visible manifestation of his presence that God gave to those people. Uh, we often refer uh, to the tabernacle and the temple in terms uh, of that Shekinah glory, uh, the Shekinah glory uh, that descended uh, into that most holy place. Now, that's a great word. It's not a biblical word, mind you. Uh, the Old Testament never refers specifically to Shekinah glory, uh, but it does refer to that glory. The term Shekinah uh, is just a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means dwelling, to dwell. And it's a very good description uh, of this dwelling glory uh, that God revealed mysteriously, but something that was visible, uh, that uh, declared his presence to the people. All right, those are theophanies. A specific type uh, of theophany was a Christophany, uh, where there were what we say are pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in the form of a man, in the form of a man, but not in the nature of a man. And it's important to keep this distinction, please. Christ did not become man until the incarnation. Uh, but there were various manifestations in human form uh, that uh, he gave to his people uh, at various times in the Old Testament. Uh, Hagar in the wilderness, I think, is the first time uh, the term angel of the Lord. Uh, actually occurs. The angel of the Lord. A Christophany. Every time you see that in your Old Testament, think of that in terms of a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Uh, the messenger who is Jehovah. Uh, a visible manifestation of the very presence of Christ. They were temporary. They were uh, from time to time, but always with a word of encouragement, exhortation, of comfort or whatever uh, to the people. Yes, sir. Question. I would say so, yes. All right. The question, I'm going to repeat your question for the uh, 
Mr. Brame, the visiting preacher, uh, uh, asked this question. Were all the personal appearances of God Christophanies? That was your question. Uh, and, and my response to that is yes. All right, My response to that would be yes. Uh, even the, the most common designation of that uh, is the angel of the Lord. All right, I think that is the most common single designation of that. Uh, I, I would tend to say then that not only are, would every personal manifestation be a Christophany, but I think I'm warranted as well uh, for identifying each of those even when not so designated uh, as the angel of the Lord. And, and I say that because, let me take this one, uh, this one illustration. Uh, you, you remember, and we've heard this preached on who knows how many thousands of times in, in this church, at prayer meetings particularly, uh, with, with Jacob's wrestling. All right, there's Jacob's wrestling with that, uh, with that man. Uh, and all that Genesis does there is identify this as a man. Jacob wrestled with a man. Uh, and Jacob was mighty curious as to who that man was. And Jacob came to recognize that that man that he was wrestling with uh, ultimately was God himself. Uh, as he named the place Peniel, right? I've seen the face of God. So he recognized uh, something about that man that, uh, uh, that ended up blessing him, changing his name from Jacob to Israel. We know that context well. Uh, but in the Genesis context, it, none, it, it simply identifies that one as uh, a, a man. But if you look at Hosea, uh, in, in Hosea chapter... Uh, I can't even find Hosea here in my English Bible anymore. You get so, I get so excited sometimes, right? If you people were interested in deer hunting, I'd tell you what, what happens about getting excited, but I won't tell that story because it brings back... Well, let's look at Hosea. Chapter 12 here. Uh, Hosea chapter 12. Uh, here, here's Hosea now about a thousand years later. All right, about a thousand years later than that episode in Genesis. Uh, and in verse 3, he took his brother, speaking of Jacob here, he took his uh, brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Uh, yea, he had power over the angel. Over the angel. Uh, so although Genesis does not identify that one as the angel, as the messenger, and, and don't think of angel, here's part of our problem, I think. Uh, we, we think of angel in terms of those created beings that are part of the ministering spirits and, and whatever else. They are created beings. Michael and uh, Gabriel and the seraphim and the cherubim, th those are angels. But the term angel in and of itself simply means messenger. All right? It's just messenger. When Malachi speaks of the messenger of the covenant, uh, whom ye are seeking that is going to come. Uh, that's, that's Messiah. Uh, and the word messenger that the authorized version uses is the word angel, same word. All right? So it's just the messenger uh, without any statement whatsoever that he's a created being. Uh, so I, I'm suggesting then, uh, number one, in answer to Mr. Brain's question, not only that every visible personal human appearance uh, in, in the Old Testament of a Theophany then was a Christophany. Uh, but I think I'm warranted for identifying each of those even in terms of the angel of the Lord, even if that expression is not, uh, is not uh, used. Uh, my, my personal opinion is, is that the first Christophany, uh, the, and the angel term does not occur here, uh, the first Christophany uh, is in, in Genesis, all right? in, in Genesis chapter 3. 
particularly some argue even in some of chapter 2, but I, I, it's not to me very clear. But in chapter 3, it's clear. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, they hid themselves in the garden. And we are told what? That they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, and that voice of the Lord, uh, their walking in the garden, then is the one that announced to them the curse, announced to them that first statement of the covenant, uh, blessing that would come in the seed of the woman. Uh, and it was the Lord that was speaking, but it was the Lord that was described there as the voice of the Lord that was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I submit to you that what Adam and Eve were seeing there or hearing was not just some mysterious rustling of leaves in the garden. All right? I would take that voice as a Christophany. Uh, that here was a personal, visible manifestation uh, of the second person of the Holy Trinity uh, that then gave that first word of gospel promise. Uh, not unlike the language of, of John the Apostle. Remember when John, uh, in the uh, first chapter of the Apocalypse, uh, is given that mysterious vision. Uh, he turns and he sees the voice. He turns and he sees the voice. We don't typically think in terms of seeing a voice. Uh, but he turns and he sees the voice that was speaking to him. And I submit to you that that is exactly the same uh, notion that we have in Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 3. But I, I go, go beyond the issue here. Uh, but you understand what I'm saying then. These Christophanies, an important means of God revealing himself uh, to his people in the Old Testament dispensation. Uh, visible manifestation, but it is imperative again uh, that we do not in any way assume that in these human appearances, human-like appearances, uh, that Christ in any way took to himself human flesh. That awaited the incarnation. All right, that awaited the incarnation. Uh, well, this is this is good. This is why it's going to take us forever to get out of Exodus. Uh, let, let me show you this. All right, let me, and again, you'll have to... This is what I just wrote in this thing, so it's all fresh in my mind here, and that's why it's coming to me so very quickly. Uh, in, in Micah, you know this famous Christmas passage? In Micah chapter, uh, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. We, we tend to look at this only at Christmas time because it identifies Bethlehem as the... Uh, birthplace uh, of the Messiah. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Now there's some significant statements here. Uh, th this verse is, I say, doing much more than identifying Bethlehem as the birthplace of the coming Messiah, although it does that very, very precisely. But what do we learn about this one that is going to be born into Bethlehem? Number one, we learn that he is going to be a ruler. All right, That's king stuff. That is messianic stuff. All right? He's going to be a ruler. 
but his coming forth into Bethlehem, and this is my key point here, his coming forth, his going forth into Bethlehem is not the first time that, he gone, that he's gone forth. Uh, his goings forth, literally his exitings, his exitings have been from old, from everlasting. But yet even uh, there is going to be another coming forth through a woman, verse 2, or verse 3 rather, identifies his coming forth through a woman. Here's his humanity, you see. But we are told here that he has goings forth before he came forth through a woman. Now, I, I would submit to you that what Micah is talking about here are what we are addressing, these various Christophanies. Uh, that there were various times when prior to his birth, prior to his coming forth through the woman, through that natural birthing process where he assumed uh, then uh, the incarnation, he took to himself the human form. Prior to that, Prior to his beginning in time, now think of the implication, you've got to think through this. Prior to his beginning in time, there were eternal manifestations. Here is one that had eternal existence before his temporary birth, his temporal birth. Well, once we start talking about people or whatever that is uh, eternal, we're talking about that which is divine perfection and divine perfection only. You see. So here is God who came forth various times from heaven that in the woman will come forth in Bethlehem. There's his birth. But prior to that were these various manifestations. Uh, I think those are referring to what we're calling Christophanies. All right? The various times when uh, the second person of the eternal trinity left heaven from time to time. His exodings were from a long time ago. Uh, and they will come uh, ultimately here in the incarnation. Well, having said all of that, here is the angel of the Lord then that appears to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, and I submit to you, there was a visible manifestation uh, of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to Moses at the very uh, beginning of his call into his uh, ministry in delivering the people. So, so I hope you understand that, please. We, we, we've got to picture the burning bush out here. All right, we've got to picture the burning bush, the nice emblem uh, of uh, Presbyterianism, free Presbyterianism. Uh, the, the burning bush in and of itself, the bush and the flames was not what was speaking uh, to Moses. All right? Look at the language very carefully. Uh, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him uh, in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Uh, it was not just this mysterious sight of a bush with flames on it. Uh, no, there was a visible personal manifestation of the angel of the Lord in that bush, in that flame uh, of the fire. Now, we don't have that part of it represented on our little emblem out here. All right? uh, we've got the bush and we've got the flame, uh, but we don't have the angel of the Lord standing uh, in the middle of that for, uh, for good reason. But uh, here it is. All right, here is a Christophany, uh, a personal, visible manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, tokens. All right? And every one of these Christophanies uh, were tokens, if you will, uh, of the coming of the Incarnation. Uh, I, the thought that I, that I had in, in working on this chapter uh, is, uh, in, in many ways, and I won't press it too far, uh, but I look at these Christophanies in some ways as being parallel to our experience uh, with, the, uh, with the Holy Spirit. 
All right. The Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in Ephesians, other places, uh, is what? The down payment. Uh, it is the earnest of our inheritance. Uh, the fact that we have within us the Holy Spirit of God is the guarantee for us of that full and that complete uh, redemption. The down payment, the guarantee. It is the token, if you will, of better things to be. Well, in, in many ways, I think these Christophanies uh, were the earnests, uh, were the down payments, uh, were the tokens that God was giving to these Old Testament people uh, that the incarnation was indeed going to come, uh, is coming. It was promised from the very, very beginning of God's salvific dealings with his people. Uh, and now were these visible tokens, a token here, a token here, a token here. And some of these were prolonged, as we'll see in terms of the Exodus. Uh, visible manifestations. This is why I, you know, I, 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 people ask this question all the time, and I think some of you have asked it even. Uh, you know how, how much of these Old Testament saints know? How could they possibly, how could they possibly know everything you say they know? Uh, well, number one, they knew their Bibles, right, and they had this revelation uh, that was given. But you think of you think of that entire wilderness experience. If I'm reading my Bible correctly, I may not be here, uh, but if I'm reading my Bible correctly, uh, there, there was a promise that God gave to Moses for the people that the angel of His presence would be with them through this entire experience. You see? Paul says the rock that followed them was Christ. Uh, that was not just some rolling stone. Uh, that was, uh, you know, they're, they're behind the last rank of, of those marching around the wilderness. Uh, there was, and I think Isaiah plays upon this in chapter 63, in all their affliction, the angel of his presence was afflicted with them. I would submit to you that during that entire 40-year period in the wilderness, there was a visible manifestation of the angel of the Lord. Uh, they knew much more we want to give them credit for. Uh, but that's a different story. What, whatever. Are you with me here? How, how did I get on this? All right, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. All right, appeared to Moses. Great, uh, great truth here uh, that occurs all the way through uh, the Scripture. All right, but what I, I'm coming to this because of verse 6. When the angel of the Lord speaks to Moses, he speaks to Moses here. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Uh, here is the, and, and here's the recognition. All right? Here is this angel of the Lord that identifies himself as God, that then Moses recognizes as God. Part of the complexity here, and I, I don't want to uh, develop this really any further at this time, I suppose, but when you study this angel of the Lord, just pay attention uh, because it brings us to the very profound mystery of this eternal relationship within the Godhead. Sometimes this angel speaks in the first person as though he is Jehovah speaking because he is. But yet other times he speaks of Jehovah in the third person. There are times when Jehovah speaks of his angel in the third person, but yet other times when there is the identity that is made between them. Uh, and it, it gets confusing. It gets confusing. Uh, the angel sometimes God, sometimes speaks to God. Uh, God sometimes speaks as the angel. Sometimes he speaks of the angel as someone other than himself. Uh, confusing. But I say it brings us to the very profound mystery of this trinity. Jesus 
uh, the second person of the Trinity is God, but yet He is distinct from the Father. And you have, you, and, and I'm submitting that you have even in these uh, Christophanies something of that, uh, something of the uh, of that mystery. Uh, it's not defined. The term Trinity doesn't occur in the Old Testament, but catch yourself, it doesn't occur in the New Testament either. You see, uh, but here is the evidence. Uh, here is the evidence of it uh, that is so wonderfully. Uh, clear, I think, in the Old Testament scriptures. All right, I, I'm, what am I doing? I'm multiplying references in uh, in Exodus where uh, our attention is brought to the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promise that was given there. Uh, chapter four uh, and verse five. Uh, the Lord here is still speaking to Moses, uh, encouraging him and telling him what he ought to be telling the people. Uh, and, and do this now as a sign that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath appeared uh, unto thee. Chapter 6 and verse 8, the text that we uh, identified last time as the, uh, the principal key text. Virtually all the themes that we're going to see uh, develop in Exodus are going to be in verses 6 to 8. But there's the reference in verse 8. Here is that which I swear to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Uh, and on and on it goes. All right, I, I, I'm not going to go through every reference here, but I want you to realize that over and over and over again, the Lord links this deliverance from the place of affliction to the promise that was given to Abraham, to Isaac, uh, and to Jacob, this covenant promise. Now, therefore, if I'm to understand, uh, if I'm to understand the implications of that, uh, I have to understand something of the promise then that God had given to Abraham. What is it about the promise that God gave to Abraham uh, that is now coming to its application and its uh, implementation uh, here in the book of Exodus? And again, I can only be suggestive, but you go back to uh, what we refer to as the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, and I deal with this also in, in, in a chapter. Uh, the essence of the Abrahamic covenant obviously is going to be that seed. Here's the seed of the woman, then the seed of Noah, the seed of Abraham, this messianic thing that ties all this stuff together. Uh, but there were various attendant circumstances of that Abrahamic uh, covenant. God promised to Abraham that there would be a great nation. He promised to Abraham that there would be a great land. He promised to Abraham that uh, he would be the source of blessing to all of the people on the face of the earth. I had all of these aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, but not the least of which uh, was that there were going to be nations, and particularly uh, this chosen nation that would ultimately be known as Israel, uh, that would come from his loins. Uh, there was a promise that God gave to Abraham. Now, we look at Abraham, and uh, from a human perspective, uh, that seems to be, if, if I can put it this way, a pretty wild promise. All right, that appears to be a pretty far-fetched promise uh, that God is giving to Abraham. Abraham is getting older and older and older, and his wife is getting older and older and older. And there's, no, there's not even one kid, let alone uh, a nation that is coming from Abraham. You see. Uh, but uh, God intervenes. All right? God intervenes uh, in a most remarkable way. And here is the birth of Isaac in the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. Well, Isaac, I'm sure, was a cute kid, uh, but he was one kid. Uh, and he was, not, uh, he was not what I would call a great nation. Uh, and Abraham had other kids by Keturah and whatever, and they all had their part in this, but it was in Isaac that the seed was going to be called. But Isaac was an only child. 
and then here comes Isaac and the same kind of a deal. No kids, no kids, no kids. And all of a sudden he has twins. Big deal. All right, finally we have twins, but twins do not a nation make. Uh, and it appears that this promise is in jeopardy. Uh, well, you know, Jacob does a little better. He's got 12 or so. Uh, but still, that, that's, hardly, that's hardly a nation. And by the time we end Genesis, by the time we end Genesis, when you get all of the kids and all of the grandkids and all of whatever else, by the time you end the book of Genesis, you've got a nation that consists of 70 people. All right? I, I, I know that some, some of you have family reunions that consist of more than that. All right? Uh, 70 people. That's all there is. By the time you end the book of Genesis, where is this promise? Where is this promise? It seems as though that was just so so far-fetched, that promise given to Abraham that there was going to be a great nation. But yet, when you turn the page, all right, when you turn the page, well, in my Bible here, anyway, I don't even have to turn the page. It all starts right there in the same page, Genesis to Exodus. Uh, now, again, I think I touched on this last week. Uh, as far as the time of composition is concerned, Genesis Exodus written by Moses about the same time. But from a historic perspective, you must understand that from a historic perspective, there are 400 odd years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. All right? There's 400 odd years that have taken place. Uh, years seemingly of silence, as it were. Ah, but they were not years of silence. And they were not years of divine inactivity in terms of the promise because even in that 400-odd year period of time, God was fulfilling His Word to Abraham. God was fulfilling that Word to Abraham. And by the time we come to Exodus chapter 1, we left Genesis with just, with just a, a, a fairly average-sized family reunion. Right? But we come to Exodus chapter 1. Uh, and we, we have the king of Egypt speaking. Uh, verse 7, verse seven. pick it up at verse 7. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased and abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty. And the land was filled with them. Then there arose a new king over Egypt which knew not Joseph. And he said unto this people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Something has happened. All right. Uh, between... Genesis and Exodus, we now have a people that uh, is great as far as numbers are concerned. Now, they're in bondage, as we're going to see. Uh, and I, I may set up the historical aspect of that because it's certainly fascinating. But I, I, I want you to see that between Genesis and Exodus, this people had multiplied. And God was fulfilling this promise to Abraham even in the place of bondage. Doc? How many came out of Egypt? How many came out of Egypt? Uh, my, my guess is that there were uh, that there could have been uh, five six million. That's that's a lot. That's a lot. Now the critics don't like that. All right, critics don't like that because they argue uh, that the the number one how would they you know do that. Uh, but the wilderness, they're, they're wandering around here in the, in the wilderness and they say the wilderness could not sustain that amount of people for, for that prolonged time. To which I say, well, of course not. Read your Bible. All right? Read your Bible. That's why God sent the manna every stinking day for 40 years. Right? Uh, it, it could not sustain them. Uh, but God intervened. And here you see. Uh, 
Now, it was a massive number. A massive number. I don't want to get into all the critical notions. All right? The, you, uh, uh, you don't want to hear this. Uh, you don't want to hear this. The, the stuff that I have to live with, all right? The, the stuff that I have to live with in my field is, is absolutely nonsense at times. Uh, but, but a critical notion, right, that there was just a little band of people down here in Egypt, you know, a couple hundred, maybe a thousand or so, uh, that they escaped and they started walking around in the desert, right, and they met some other nomads from up over here who uh, worshipped another god and they kind of got together and combined their forces and uh, ultimately Israel was a conglomeration of various nomadic tribes uh, that were wandering around in the desert and finally got together and... Let me see, uh, not nonsense, nonsense. And the, the tragic thing about what I do is I have to deal with that kind of stuff uh, from from time to time. Um, but a big, a big number of people, big number of people. So, okay. Any other questions? There, okay, that's good. All right. God remembered the covenant. Now, God had not forgotten the covenant. All right. That's one thing that we have to understand. Uh, that between the promise that God had given to Abraham and uh, the manifestation of this that we're seeing in Exodus, God had not forgotten a thing. Uh, but the text does say that He remembered. He remembered the promise. We talked about that word uh, before. The implication is that uh, now is this focus of thought. Here is the, uh, the bringing, as it were, to conscious mind in operation, that which is, uh, that which is uh, the object of that uh, remembering. So in verse 24, God remembered His covenant. Uh, the idea of God, as it were, and this is in terms that we can understand, God was bringing to His mind now for the implementation and the evidence uh, of that covenant promise. And I say all the way through here. So they were the objects. They were the objects here uh, of God's covenant promise. While we refer to Israel as the covenant nation. Uh, it's a nation that existed by virtue of a covenant promise uh, that God had given to Abraham so many, many years uh, before. And we see then a contest. Uh, one of the remarkable things here in these opening chapters is the contest uh, between an earthly king who was doing what he could do to somehow bring this people to nothing. Uh, to uh, subdue this people, to control this people, and we see all of the uh, all of the efforts that he uh, that he tried put him in slave labor. See, uh, well, let, let's kill let's kill the males at birth. See, uh, let's if that doesn't work and it didn't work, then you know it was open season. You know, it became open season uh, on on on, uh, on on Hebrew. On Hebrew children, uh, here is a, 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 an earthly king that was doing everything within his power uh, to subdue this people, to control this people, uh, to frustrate, if you will, uh, this plan and purpose of Almighty God. But in contrast to that, we have the great king who had a promise that he would not renege upon, who had a promise that would not fail, who had a promise that... Uh, was going to be fulfilled uh, in, in any and every way, and we have him putting down this earthly king at every turn. Uh, and we have the preservation of these people uh, and the ultimate deliverance 
uh, of these people. You know, none of this took God by surprise. And this is, this is, this is the thing that you know, I think is helpful to keep in mind as well. I'll go back to Genesis. I'll show you this and we'll have to quit for today, I suppose. Uh, but look at Genesis chapter 15 and, and verse 13. Just to let you see that none of this took God by surprise. Nothing ever does. Chapter 15 of Genesis is one of those key statements of the covenant promise that God gives to Abraham. Chapter 12, 15, and 17, you mark those as key chapters. But look what the Lord says to Abraham at verse 15. And he said to Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. Well, there you go. All right, there you go. Uh, here is the Lord telling Abraham exactly what was going to happen. This whole Egyptian experience, this whole Egyptian captivity, this whole Egyptian bondage uh, had not taken God by surprise, but even this was the means whereby God was fulfilling, uh, was fulfilling His purpose. All right, and we have now, with, with the call of Moses, the, the end of those, uh, we have the end of those 400 some years. Now, uh, there's so many attendant uh, things here from a historical standpoint that are helpful to realize uh, as well. Uh, the people were not in bondage, in, in captivity, as it were, for the entire period of their Egyptian sojourn. Uh, that's pretty clear from, from the Joseph narratives. They had it pretty good for a while. And, and they were the favorites and received very special treatment uh, from the Egyptians for some years, uh, particularly at the beginning of that, uh, of that sojourn, of that exile into uh, the land of captivity. Uh, things happen, and I think historically we can put this uh, in, in good reason. Uh, if I started talking to you people uh, about the Hyksos, uh, about the Hyksos dynasties of Egypt. Would that make any sense to you right now? Uh, the Hyksos. Uh, I won't do it then. Um, but it's, it's just neat. I'm telling you, what, it's just neat to see how all of this historical stuff that we know from secular history fits in exactly with what the Scripture is, uh, is teaching us here. That God is manipulating and God is controlling the affairs of Egyptian history. Uh, this greatest power on God's earth at that time, manipulating and controlling Egyptian history all for the purpose of fulfilling His covenant promise for His people. Uh, it's quite remarkable. All right, to me, that's quite remarkable and it's something that we need to, uh, that we need to keep in mind. There was, there was Egypt, I say, that in that time was the greatest power on God's earth. Uh, and... Uh, Nobody uh, could hold, as it were, the candle against them. Uh, but when we, when we see uh, now in, in retrospect the historical development of the history of Egypt and relate that to what we know in the history of the Old Testament Scriptures, I, I say I, I, every time I think of it, and I think of it often, uh, I, I just stand back in amazement uh, and uh, must salute that absolute sovereignty of God uh, who is working all things and all the affairs of nations and governments and powers uh, for the ultimate purpose of His glory and His kingdom. Uh, 
Uh, and I, I submit to you, that does not stop. All right? and, I, and I think here's where we have our, uh, our difficulty sometimes. All right? we, we, it's easy for us to see historically, my, how God controls.